I'm going to put Earl Bonds on alert just because he's back by the light switches. Um, we're we're going to start pretty quickly with a video, so if you don't mind, in just a second, we'll turn those down. Oh, board correction. Um, so thank you all for being here this morning. This morning, uh, we decided to continue our conversation from last week. Last week, we started talking about the role of the faith community in the environmental crisis in what we call the Anthropocene, uh, which was a new word for some of us. It's, it's saying that we have entered a new phase as a planet. Um, all of the previous uh, phases of the planet were named after something that was going on at the time, something that characterized uh, the geology and the climate. And this is the first phase we have entered where humanity is the biggest driving factor about the way the environment is working, about the shape of our climate. And so we thought we'd continue that conversation this week by asking questions of social justice that come up around climate. Uh, and because Lori was so eagerly involved in last week's discussion about raising these questions, I thought we'd let her come up and talk about some of the work that she has been doing at Eaton around these questions. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit around what is environmental racism. Before I have Lori talk about that directly, I wanted to show a really short video, uh, one of two videos that gets at this question. In America, air and water are set when environmental racism is a huge Yeah, yeah, I get it. The environment isn't a person. How can it be racist? But the most basic pieces of the environment, the air we breathe and the water we drink, are controlled and designed by people. And people can More than half of all people who live close to hazardous waste are people of color. Floodplains nationwide have high populations of blacks and Hispanics. Black children are twice as likely to suffer from less poisoning than white children. This inequality is no accident. Pollution and the risk of disaster are assigned to black and brown communities through generations of discrimination and political neglect. Enslaved Africans were commodities partly because their work carried environmental risks that were unacceptable whites, like exposure to heat, malaria, and mosquitoes. As Jim Crow laws created racial segregation, they also reinforced an environmental system that still disadvantages minorities. It's no wonder that black and Hispanic children have the highest rates of asthma for the hurricanes like Katrina, Sandy, and Matthew did their worst damage in communities of color. Rich white neighborhoods can be the water bottles, but not places like them. The Jim Crow laws are dead and gone, but the fact that people of color are still more likely to die from environmental causes is no accident. Absolutely kill me the last semester. 
And um, so I took two classes that I thought were totally separate. James, the Theology and Ethics of James Cone, and a class called Reading the Bible. Thinking that ecology and race and racism, black liberation theology, were separate topics. I had talked to people, in fact, um, some friends of mine who started a, a women-owned landscaping business about how I was so glad they're out fighting for ecology and I'm out working on issues of racism and, and let's bring each other to those spaces because we can't work in both. And as I took these two classes this semester, what I came to learn is my paradigm is completely wrong. It was completely wrong. And there is one article in particular, if it's brief, if anybody's interested, I'm more than happy to make a copy for you, called Whose Earth Is It Anyway? Um, it's by James Cone, and he opens with this verse from Psalms. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. It all belongs to the Lord. So if we think about this verse, and we think about the sin of racism, and the sin of environmental destruction, how does this quote, how does this verse fit with those two? What's the common thread in racism and environmental destruction? Humanity? Maybe, did you mean man in particular, or humanity? No, I was using it. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean so. No, no, but. The, the feminists would agree with you. Yeah, there could be an argument for that. That's why I wanted to pull that up. Okay, humanity. <laughs> humanity. What else? Power. Power. And how's that power? Let's dig into that power. How's that power used? What's the assumption of that power? Ownership. We can, we can own people. We have the power. Humanity has the power to own people for their own benefit. And humanity owns the earth. And it is exclusively for our use. Um, what James Cone does in this article, Whose Earth Is It Anyway, is to remind us whose earth it is and to whom it belongs. And he encourages those working for um, racial equality and those working for ecological justice to look for each other's lenses. So first he talks about um, racism work, um, linking it to, linking equality uh, work to expanding uh, to ecological work. And he, he touches very much, I don't even really need to review it because what Mike just showed is very much what he talks about. Like if you're working for race, you have, uh, for race equity, you have to be looking at what's happening with the environment. Um, the statistics about race is the best predictor of the location of hazardous waste sites in the United States. So if you want to know where hazardous waste is, look at where minority populations, people of color who are poor, are living. Um, and, and they used the term that was coined by actually somebody in the United Church of Christ, environmental racism. Um, I love what Cone says, white middle-class suburbs say, not in my backyard. Well, if not in my backyard, then not in the backyard of the poor, 
and not in the backyard of Ghana or Somalia, in nobody's backyard. Nobody's. Um, expanding racism um, to think about ecological concerns means noting how the two are interrelated and acting for the good of both the earth and its people. Um, I really love what Professor Ben Sanders, who many of you uh, saw preach and, and speak at this very forum back in February. So he's the professor for my um, Theology of James Cone class. He has a really interesting perspective that I think is a, a game shifter. Instead of saying, let's look at Flint and the water, and let's look at hazardous waste, and, and how is that influencing people of color? He says, we need to start with the black body. Start there. What is happening to the black body? And that answer tells us where we need to work on ecology. So it's just, it's a flip in perspective. Um, and I think off, too often, uh, white power has not ever started with the black body. So Professor Sanders is doing writing and thinking um, on this line, beginning with the, the body of the uh, black person. And what does it mean for ecologists to become race equity advocates? So James Cone is not um, bashful. And he says straight out, uh, white ecologists care more about the spotted owl than they do about black bodies. And what, uh, white ecologists care more about uh, pristine recreation outlets than they do the fact that we have hazardous waste sites located where people of color live. So he encourages them to ask this question. The people, can the people who created the problem white supremacist power system solve the problem? And his answer is no. So that people of color and the poor indigenous populations who have been most affected by environmental uh, degradation need to be front and center in creating solutions to our ecological problems. Um, he says the master's tools will never dismantle the master's problem. I had a happy occasion, I don't even know this, I had a happy occasion yesterday to spend the morning visiting a place that is doing justice, um, bringing together ecological concerns and race equity work. I went to Urban Harvest. Has anybody been to the uh, rooftop farm? And it is down in 63106, in Jeff Vanderloo neighborhood. There is a farm on top of this building. And it is addressing ecological concerns because the entire roof has a plastic liner on it, which you can't see. And then this uh, like felt pad under it so that the roots don't, of the plants don't get into the roof. When it rains, it collects the water so it's not going into the sewer system and overrunning our sewer system. It's collected and sitting underneath the rooftop. When it evaporates, it's rewatering the plants. So the plants are getting watered twice by the rain. Then all the produce that they mow, 75 to 80 percent of the produce that they have there, they have a food bike and they bike in the neighborhood, distributing vegetables, 
seeds engaging the community um, in feeding their bodies in a way that the neighborhood does not allow for. They're making, they've got four rooftop gardens and three ground level gardens. So I thought that was just an amazing example of how you can, of, of ecological and race equity concerns all wrapped into one package. Yep. How did this, is it one person start this or was this a, what institute began? So Lucy, that's such an interesting question because of course I'm like, I'm, my brain's like, where are they getting the funding for all this? What's their board structure? I wonder how they... And so I, I poked into that a little, but I was with St. Michael and St. George's Youth Ministry, so it would have been inappropriate for me to ask any more than I did. What I, what I pulled um, away from it is that there was a lot of support from MSD um, initially, and they have some big players who helped to, to make that. But there's a, there's a woman um, who was an architect from Chicago who, when she moved here, was like, what the heck is going on in St. Louis? And um, there's a food roof movement across the United States, and so she brought it here. So, hey, thank you, Lori. Mm -hmm. uh, B, I want to tell you all another story about climate and justice and our relationship in El Salvador this time. So this photo, I took over a decade ago in an area of El Salvador called Bajo Lempa. Um, Bajo Lempa is where Noah Bullock, who's the executive director of Cristosol, our partners in El Salvador, started his work when he first went to El Salvador. So when I started visiting Noah originally, long before I knew that Holy Communion was a church, long before I moved back when I was back in San Diego, I would go with Noah to Bajo Lempa. And one of the interesting things for me coming to St. Louis, I'm going to just be very open and honest here, is that long before I got here, I had heard the name Monsanto in Bajo Lempa. Um, Bajo Lempa, and I'll show you a video about this in just a moment, but has some of the highest rates of kidney failure disease in the world. It's killing thousands of Salvadorans. It's killing people not just in Salvador, but throughout Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, that whole region of Central America. People are dying. And for a very long time, they couldn't figure out why. It's a relatively new phenomenon. It's really in the last 20 years, this critical kidney disease became a major issue in Bapalemba. When I first started going there 10 years ago, there was a sort of colloquial popular wisdom about what was going on. They said the water table in Mahalimba is very high, and these chemicals we've started adding to our crop production, principally our sugarcane production, the pesticides and the fertilizers that come from Monsanto are killing us. That was, that was when I first, and I, don't, I may have heard the word Monsanto before that, but the first time I had a sense of Monsanto was Central Americans telling me they were suspicious that Monsanto's chemicals were killing them, were giving them kidney disease. So then I came to St. Louis, and I started working in a church where a number of folks work at Monsanto. Mm -hmm. And we started a relationship with El Salvador. And just back in October, I brought Noah uh, and David Morales, the lead human rights attorney for Cristos Hall, mm -hmm. to Monsanto for a conversation. Mm -hmm. 
And Monsanto had a little bit of a sense that this was what folks were saying in Central America. They were more ready to talk to us about genetically modified organisms and why they were safe. And the funny thing is, if you talk to Salvadorans, they're ready to eat all the genetically modified organisms. You know, they're, they're not, that's not their concern. But they weren't really ready to talk about kidney disease. I want to zoom a little bit more forward. There have been recent studies into that kidney disease. Um, just this year, there have been a number of um, studies that have started to produce results about what is driving the kidney disease. I'm going to let Judy Woodruff tell you about it. American communities, a mysterious disease has affected farm workers. We spend long, hot days in the fields cutting sugar paint. In his latest in a series of reports from El Salvador, special correspondent Fred San Lazaro focuses on workers who were caught in the middle of trying to eke out a living while maintaining their health. This report is part of Fred's series, Agents for Change. The cutters begin early, trying to sneak a couple of hours before the tropical sun begins to scorch the sugarcane fields. It's dirty, brutal work that requires the stamina of the young and physically fit, the exertion likened to running a half marathon every day. But 20 years ago, doctors began noticing an alarming increase in the number of these young workers across Central America who were coming into hospitals with a mysterious, ultimately fatal, kidney ailment. Dr. Ramon Garcia is a kidney specialist in El Salvador's capital, San Salvador. Seven to eight deaths every day in this small country is 10, 12 times more than the expected death rate. This is a silent massacre. As Dr. Garcia and others began to investigate, they discovered that on some farms, nearly one-fifth of sugarcane workers were suffering from chronic kidney disease, even though they had none of the usual risk factors, such as high blood pressure or diabetes. Jose Juanjaras has been a pain cutter most of his adult life in the small coastal region that is the diseases at the center. His father and uncle died from it. He got his diagnosis seven years ago. It came on very suddenly. Back pain, fever, vomiting. The illness forced him to stop the grueling work as a cutter, so he now works as a field assistant. He needs the job, he says, even though the wages barely cover the cost of medications to slow the disease. I have to take care of myself and watch my diet, because if I don't, I'll have to get dialysis, and that just means death. Ramon Aguilar, who heads a cooperative of small farmers in the region, says at least 10 of his members died last year from the kidney disease. There may have been others who died who weren't diagnosed. Here in El Salvador, many people don't want to recognize this disease and that an epidemic exists. Dr. Garcia and other researchers, including a team from Boston University, have conducted several studies trying to determine the cause. Initially, pesticides were considered a likely culprit, but there was no explanation why these chemicals didn't have a similar impact in other places they are sprayed, including the United States. Dr. Garcia says one thing they believe may be a contributing factor is the severe dehydration of workers, which prevents the kidneys from functioning fully. It's 
Too hot, simply too hot. You cannot drink enough water at the same pace that you are losing it into it. It's, it's impossible. We're not sure if this is the real cause, the only cause, or there's a mix of many causes that uh, put together are producing the disease. As researchers scramble to find the root cause of the disease, some groups are focusing on improving working conditions. Some regions of the world have mechanized cane harvesting. It lowers the financial cost, but would create a social one here, says Sebastian Tunison of the Netherlands-based group Solidaridad. Something has to change, and it could be that it's mechanization, it could be that uh, farmers work together in cooperatives so they take effective use of the land, but that means that there's going to be surplus labor, and one of the issues really is where is that labor going to go in, in, the, in the coming decades? This group and others trying to coax workers to take regular rest breaks and shelter from the intense sun and to hydrate whether or not they are thirsty. They also managed to get one of the largest sugar producers in the country to make this company policy. Problem is, just 8% of the sugar processed here comes from company land. Most comes from small farmers. 2,000 of them, says owner Walmart. Just to convince people that the practice of you know, resting and taking water with a certain frequency, it's hard to get across. It's not hard to understand why. Here in the field, there's every incentive to just keep working because taking a break comes at a direct personal cost to workers who are paid not by the hour, but by how much cane they cut. Everyone has their own working styles. Sometimes you don't want to rest, but then your body rests. Solidaridad has also tried to introduce a new machete designed in Australia to be more ergonomic so workers don't need to bend as low as they swing it. It's been a big improvement. Our arms are less tired. You can feel it in your entire body. It has let us cut more cane and have less effort to do so. We're having good productivity, but the blade is made of a different material, and it wears out a little faster. That means workers have to stop more often, sometimes hourly, to sharpen their blade, which could mean losing up to a tenth of a day's earnings. For others, struggling small farmers, the cost of the new machete is also a barrier. Another idea is crop diversification. This is the where the place where they uh, ferment. Juan Wright has begun a pilot program of growing cocoa, which is grown in shade forests. I personally think that cocoa complements uh, sugarcane. Cocoa means permanent trees. It means uh, an agricultural forest uh, that provides jobs in friendlier type of work environment. But switching to new crops requires time and money that small farmers don't have. It's one reason Solidaridad's Tunison says changes come slowly to an industry long set in its ways, where a few large sugar mills get much of their raw material from small subsistence farmers. Uh, a lot of the modern business practices uh, are not readily adopted simply because tradition is so strong in this industry. Layer on top of that the fact that it's uh, regulated by uh, governments is so important to the economy, uh, it, it's uh, not necessarily progressive in every case. Meanwhile, Boston University has just begun a three-year study 
trying to further unlock the mystery of a condition that has claimed the lives of more than 25,000 Central American agricultural workers over the past two decades. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Trevi San Lazaro in Masulatan, El Salvador. Fred's reporting is a partnership with the Undertold Stories Project at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. So, what did you notice? What did you notice in that story? Is it easy to identify one single cause? Yeah, the, the, when the doctor says there may be a combination of factors going on. There's a piece that they don't talk about. Um, and the studies that have, that have been coming out continue to point to dehydration as a primary contributing factor. Um, why would dehydration be a bigger issue over the last 20 years? Because of climate change. Temperatures have increased. There's another piece that's going on there, and that is El Salvador is second only to Haiti in this hemisphere for being the most deforested country uh, in the hemisphere. So Haiti's the most deforested, El Salvador's the second most deforested. That deforestation happened, a lot of it, in the last 20 years. And so the change there also, I mean, you can change a local climate by changing your forest cover as well. So the idea of the cocoa or the, um, the chocolate is a way of getting at both a little bit of reforestation and changing your work conditions. There's another piece they don't mention here, which if you do a little more research um, on what's been coming out lately, something else happened in the last 20 years that could be contributing to dehydration. Think about hydration in Central America. Those of you who have come with us down there or have thought about coming with us down there, what is a problem with hydration in Central America? Clean water. So Central America, um, Central Americans have had less access to clean water. Uh, when we go down, we have to buy filtered water and, and be very careful about the water we drink, especially as those of us living up here in North America that um, have really weak constitutions for not being around the kind of bugs that are in the water down there. But Salvadorans don't drink tap water. And that Salvadorans don't drink tap water, one of the things they're studying is that the sugary drinks they buy instead, if they drink a Coke out in the field or a Gatorade, that if you're dehydrated and you add that sugar and you add those chemicals into your system, it may be one of the contributing factors to the kidney disease. They also haven't ruled out Monsanto entirely. They haven't ruled out the role, the role of pesticides, the role of fertilizers. They're, they're, as they said, there may be multiple contributing factors. If you're really dehydrated, chemicals might affect you more. They haven't been able to rule it out totally. But part of the question that that raises for me is, if the common wisdom for decades was Monsanto was the cause of this, what is the responsibility of a company like Monsanto, or what could a role for a company like Monsanto be? Uh, you've got a bunch of universities that are funding these studies, but we have a lot of scientists that work for Monsanto. They've got doctors that work at Monsanto. Could not a company like that get involved in um, ways to do this question? I decided to show you the shorter video um, of the videos that are out there. If you have time, there's a really beautiful, um, well-shot uh, investigation into this done by Al Jazeera North America. 
And in that one, there's this wonderful exchange. There's a company that attached to that sugar mill that you saw the owner of uh, that has been instituting these hourly work breaks and also instituting hydration plans. And it's really funny to listen to the, um, the, the sort of union leader guy who's walking around making sure people are taking their breaks talking about Los Camelbacks. Because um, <laughs> they're all walking around with camelbacks on their backs now. And so he talks about Los Camelbacks that made a big difference. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see, it's interesting to see pieces of industry looking to be a part of the solution as well, or looking to get into the question. Um, I also didn't know that Lori was gonna tee up with that idea about, if you wanna look at the environment, look at what's happening to black, and I would add more brown bodies. But part of why they know there's an environmental crisis in this region is because people are dying. And we don't make those links often enough. Mike, it strikes me too that if Monsanto comes into the solution, or whoever might, as James Cohn said, it can't just be the people that initially created a piece of the problem, yep. that the, the foreman, the people who are on the ground have to be part of that solution. Yep, the people on the ground have to be a part of the solution. I mean, you heard that too, you heard that the sugar mill only owns 8% of the land, and a lot of this is a cultural change that has to happen at the grassroots level with local small far farmers. What else, Lisa? The city of Monsanto totally eaten up by Bayer. Mm. We're all saying Monsanto, but Monsanto doesn't exist anymore. That's a good point. So, yeah, but all the labs and all the chemicals are just, they have Bayer labels on them instead of Monsanto labels on them, so. But anyway, and also, um, no, I forgot what else I was going to say. Go well, on. You're right. Just a comment right there just made me think about the, the problem of coal miners in Appalachia. Yeah. That we have seen since the 30s the effect of coal dust or, or as people working at asbestos mines on the bodies of the, the people who worked in, in, in these mines. Yeah. And it, it's still an issue, and we still have a government that says, let's burn more coal. This is a this is a common um, when you get talking about race, particularly in Virginia where I went to seminary. One of the things that happens really commonly is that folks from Appalachia will bring up these are the same problems that are facing poor white communities in Appalachia. Yeah. Environmental racism is a way to name a lot of what happens in our cities. Uh, I still I commend to you again. We'll put a link on it on the adult forum page on the website. There was a really, really good interview that Dr. Allison Nash from this congregation gave about the highest asthma rates in the country are in East St. Louis in the predominantly black neighborhoods east of St. Louis, and it's because of environmental exposure. So there's a, the race piece is a contributing factor in the sense that poor people tend to live in environmentally degraded areas. Poor people tend to be black and brown. But poor people also are white Appalachians who are coal miners. Um, and how we engage environment also affects them. You also heard this complicating factor about how we choose to engage environmental concerns affects questions of employment and labor and jobs and livelihood. Lisa. I remember what else I was going to say. I feel like one of the issues they were talking about was totally economic or it was yep. a choice of management in that. They were talking about how the people were um, paid just by the amount of short things they cut. If somebody would pay them to take that break, you know they'd take that break. Mm -hmm. yeah. And a bag of sugar is cheap. 
I wouldn't mind paying a little more for my sugar. Yeah. If it, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that would be but, like, if you could work that into it somehow. The they're, trick they're on that. They're not taking a break because they're losing money. The trick on that is, um, you have to remember this is an agricultural country that's tried to maintain, sometimes with war, an agricultural way of life. And so it's not like you've got a manager sitting in San Salvador who's making decisions about hourly versus, you have families that own their land that get paid by the sugar mill for what they deliver. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as clean as just being able to decide what the hourly wage is. It, it's, you know, it's, it's your uncle and your cousins and your brothers are all helping you farm and the whole family gets paid based on the amount of cane they deliver. And how you distribute that is a little trickier when it's just your family-owned farm rather than an hourly wage. Other Lisa. Yeah. I think it's interesting when we're thinking about uh, solutions problems. I mean, there's sort of a case in point. They, they brought in a, the Australian-style machete. Yeah. And like, it made it easier on their bodies, but it cut their production. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about, like, that's an outside solution coming in. Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is going to be so much better for the workers. But it still has a bottom line mm -hmm. impact. Yeah. And I think that that like that just showcases how clearly solutions need to come mm -hmm. from the ground up in so many ways because there are impacts we can't even know of. They they do and they do and <coughs> another piece on this is that sugarcane production, um, while it has always been a part of the industry of El Salvador grew a great deal uh, 20 years ago as part of what happened when NAFTA and CAFTA, which is the, it's like NAFTA Junior, it's the Central American Free Trade Agreement, both passed. Because part of the reason sugarcane became more and more important of a crop is because the subsistence farming, the growing of beans and rice and corn, Suddenly, with U.S. subsidized agriculture and with our agricultural products coming into the Central American market, our products are much cheaper. It is cheaper to buy a bag of corn dried and brought down from the U.S. than it is to grow your own corn in El Salvador because our government subsidizes corn so heavily. There are very few places in the United States where you can grow sugarcane. We don't have the right climate for it. And so sugarcane begins to take over. And so... It's both a, from the bottom up, like how do the people at the grassroots um, work on these solutions together, but it's also this complex ecological system of inequality and questions of structures about who benefits from where that get woven in. I'm gonna ask you all to talk at your tables for a minute. So I uh, usually have three, I've got four, because the middle two are related, but not super related. So, James Cohn has said, a common refrain in environmental movement is, blacks or the poor don't care about the environment. How does this ring true? How does it ring false? What can be done? Number two, environmental, is, environmental racism can be blatantly obvious. What are some examples you've heard or have seen that show the effects of environmental racism? And then sort of connected to it, Social injustice and climate can also be subtle, complicated, and deadly. How have you seen human-driven climate change act as a subtle contributing factor in injustice? And then finally, what role can and should the faith community play in questions of justice and climate? What action would you like to take with other faith leaders? 
to solve these. Uh, we'll give you 10 minutes to talk at your tables, and then we'll come back for a group discussion at the end.